What's up, guys? We are back for another episode. I'm Brooke, and this is Amos for Murder. All right, so this week we've got the letter F, and I knew I wanted to do this topic from the very beginning. I found a case that is associated with the term, and I thought, yeah, this is it. This is fascinating. But honestly, the more and more I got into researching the case, the less I felt it was really representative of the term. However, I'm still going to do it because one, I still find both the term and the case really interesting. And two, some psychiatrists at the time believed the murderers did suffer from this illness. So this is kind of a what do you think episode. Today, F is for folie à deux. First, as always, I'm going to tell you more about folie à deux, what it is, who gets it, etc. But first, a preface. I do not speak French at all whatsoever and I'm not good at it so I will probably butcher the French terms but please bear with me and just try to try to look past it all right so folie à deux is also known as shared psychosis or shared delusional disorder SDD but it literally translates to insanity of two It's a psychiatric syndrome in which symptoms of a delusional belief and sometimes hallucinations are (laughs) transmitted. Sorry, my cat just jumped on the table. Um, A psychiatric syndrome in which symptoms of a delusional belief and sometimes hallucinations are transmitted from one person to another. If the delusion is shared between two people, it's called folie à deux, which is the most common, but it can also be shared between more people. A delusion shared between three people is called folie à trois. Between four people is folie à quatre. Um, a whole family sharing a delusion is folie en famille. And if it's several people but not a family, then it's folie à plusieurs. I'm sure that is absolutely wrong. Um, the term folie à deux dates back to 1877 in a classic report by French psychiatrist Charles Lasguay and Jean-Pierre Faurette. In their publication, they write that the proximity of contact, duration of contact, and imbalance in intellect and suggestibility is what allows the syndrome to manifest. The paper wasn't translated into English until 1964, even though it is frequently referenced and their coined term, folie à deux, is still commonly used in psychiatric vocabulary today. Last week, I talked a little bit about the DSM and the ICD. If you missed last week's episode, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and the ICD is the International Classification of Diseases. Both are updated, which is noted by the number that follows the title. For example, the DSM-5 is the current edition of the DSM, the fifth edition. Folie à deux is found in the previous DSM, DSM DSM-4, as shared psychotic disorder and is is in the current ICD, ICD ICD-10, as induced delusional disorder. The disorder is not in the DSM-5, not because it's not recognized as a real disorder, but it is just no longer entered in the book as its own separate disease entity. In the DSM-5, SDD, shared delusional disorder, 
is included in the section, quote, other specified schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders. It states that a person can't be diagnosed as delusional if the belief in question would be considered, quote, ordinarily accepted by other members in one's culture. It's hard to diagnose because how does one determine what is considered a normal belief for a culture? Plus, a large group of people of the same culture believing in an obviously false and disturbing thing from hearsay is mass hysteria and not a delusion. The causes of SDD are unknown, but generally thought to be stress and isolation. The precise way that stress and mental health is linked is still being uncovered, but it's believed there's a biochemical link. Being genetically predisposed to have a mental illness can be triggered because of stress. Researchers are still conducting experiments on mice to better study how stress affects the chemicals of the body. SDD is commonly diagnosed in people that live in close proximity with little to no interaction with outsiders. However, like I said, diagnosing is hard to do because the dominant person, who's also known as the primary inducer or principal, does not seek medical treatment because they don't see their thoughts and actions as abnormal. In short, they don't see a problem. They wholeheartedly believe their delusions. Folly occurs when the primary imposes their delusional beliefs onto a second person, also known as the secondary, acceptor, or associate. When the secondary would not have become delusional on their own without the primary, it falls in the subclassification of folly as folly impasse. The other subclassification is folly simultanee. Again, French terms I'm probably butchering. But this subclassification is when either two people suffering independently from psychosis influence each other so their delusions become identical, or where two people predisposed to delusional psychosis mutually trigger symptoms in each other. And again, diagnosis is so difficult because the primary doesn't believe that they're causing harm, but actually helping the secondary become aware of something vital. The DSM-5 criteria for diagnosis is, one, the secondary must have a delusion that develops in the context of a close relationship with someone with an established delusion, the primary. Two, the secondary's delusion must be similar or identical to an established delusion. And three, the delusion cannot be explained by another psychological disorder, mood disorder, or be the effect of substance abuse. In both subclassifications, the extent and type of delusion varies. So type of delusion, there are a few different types. Psychology Today magazine defines delusions as, quote, fixed beliefs that do not change even when a person is presented with conflicting evidence. First, you've got bizarre delusions. These delusions are clearly implausible and not understood by peers in the same culture. For example, if a person believes that an alien came in the middle of the night, stole all their organs, sewed them back up, and now they're living without organs, that's a bizarre delusion. Not only is it implausible, it's impossible because you can't live without all your organs. Non-bizarre delusions are common among personality disorders. They would be understood by peers in the same culture. So an example is if someone believes the FBI is following them. It's possible, but highly unlikely. 
There are also mood congruent and mood neutral delusions. Mood congruent delusions correspond to a person's emotions within a time frame, uh, especially mania or depression. So a person experiencing mania may believe that they are a powerful deity or a person in a depressive episode may believe the news anchor on TV is highly disapproving of them. So those delusions are based on the moods that they're currently feeling. Mood neutral delusions don't relate to the sufferer's emotional state and they can be bizarre or non-bizarre delusions. As far as treatment, the first step is to separate the formerly healthy person from the inducer. If the delusion doesn't lessen, medication or therapy is next. Antipsychotics are given as medication to reduce or relieve the symptoms of delusion or hallucinations. They also stabilize mood and reduce anxiety, which can be really helpful for someone suffering. There are two types of possible therapy, personal and family. Personal is one-on-one and focuses on the building of the relationship so the patient can speak freely. And then family therapy is where the entire family comes to work on the relationship so the patient feels supported and safe. All right, quick break, and then we are on to the case. So two of the most famous Folly Adeau cases are the Pepin sisters and the Erickson twins. Both are incredibly fascinating, so if you don't know them, you should definitely look them up. Some podcasts that have covered the Pepin sisters are My Favorite Murder, uh, theirs is episode 55, and Morbid covered it as well, theirs is episode 172. The Erickson twins were covered by Unexplained, season four, episode 16, and Case File also covered it, case number 17. Those aren't the only podcasts that have covered them. They're just some of the ones that I've listened to and really enjoyed. So like I said, they've been done before, and I really just wanted to do something different, and that is lesser known, Um, but well, at least this was lesser known to me. So the case I'm going to talk about today is the Parker Home case. Pauline Yvonne Parker and Juliet Marion Holm first met at Christchurch Girls High School. Pauline was born in Christchurch, New Zealand on May 26, 1938, and suffered from a bad case of osteomyelitis as a child when she was about five years old. Osteomyelitis is the infection of the bone. Juliet was born in Blackheath, London on October 28, 1938, and suffered from tuberculosis throughout her life. They were both very intelligent girls, and they bonded over their love of books and their illnesses as children. Pauline would later say that they romanticized the idea of being sick. But they came from very different backgrounds. Pauline came from a working-class family. She lived in an inner-city home that doubled as a boarding house run by Pauline's mother, Honora Riper, and her dad worked in a fish shop. Juliet was the daughter of physicist Dr. Henry Holm and Hilda Holm. She was diagnosed with tuberculosis as a child and sent to the Caribbean and South Africa in hopes that the warmer climates would help with her illness. She rejoined her family at the age of 13 in New Zealand. Dr. Holm was rector or senior official in an educated education institution. Had to look that one up. I think that's a 
New Zealand term, um, but he was rector of Canterbury University College. So Pauline and Juliet became very close, like obsessively close. Together, they came up with an elaborate fantasy life where they took on new names. Pauline became Gina and Juliet became Deborah. And honestly, if we're picking names, no offense to Gina's and Deborah's out there, but pick cooler names, right? They would write stories, plays, operas, and books centered in this fantasy world with these fictional characters, including storylines like highway robberies, bedroom scenes, and violent deaths. Their dream was to go to New York to find a book publisher, then go to Hollywood to have the books turned into movies. At night, Pauline and Juliet would sneak out and act out these new identities. Later, Juliet's mom would say that sometimes Juliet would be so deep in character as Deborah, it was difficult to make contact with Juliet. This fantasy life also included their own made-up religion. They rejected Christianity, said it was a farce, and came up with their own morality ideas and worshipped their own saints based on celebrities, such as the one based on opera singer Mario Lanza. The girls often in their writings, the girls often spoke, the girls spoke often in their writings of a parallel dimension which they could enter into occasionally during moments of spiritual enlightenment. They called it the fourth world, and it was their vision of heaven. They became conceited and arrogant, convinced they were geniuses. Pauline wrote in her diary, quote, We have an extra part of our brain which can appreciate the fourth world. Pauline and Juliet's parents started to become concerned with their extremely close friendship and their all-encompassing fictional world. They consulted a doctor who suggested the relationship between the girls might be sexual, which at this time was seen as a mental illness, but the parents continued to allow the girls to spend time together. In the summer of 1953, Juliet fell ill with tuberculosis again. She was sent to a sanatorium for three months. The girls were absolutely devastated about being separated and wrote to each other continuously as their fictional characters. While Juliet was away, Pauline began sneaking out to meet boys much older than herself. She was caught by her parents with one of the university students that was boarding at their house named Nicholas, but she continued to see him. However, as soon as Juliet returned home, Nicholas was out. Pauline wrote in her diary on October 28, 1953, which was Juliet's birthday, quote, I told Nicholas I was no longer very much in love with him, and also wrote, quote, it was wonderful returning with Juliet. It was as if she had never been away. I believe I could fall in love with Juliet. Before the summer of 1954, the Holmes announced that they would be getting a divorce. Dr. Holm had resigned after problems with the board at school, and Mrs. Holm was having an affair. The plan was to send Juliet to live with relatives in South Africa to help her health. Pauline and Juliet were heartbroken. They decided that Pauline would just go to South Africa as well. After all, the whole time they had been friends, either girl would get so depressed when the other left their house that they would become ill. Pauline and Juliet believed that the Holmes would agree to this plan, but Pauline's mom would object. Pauline's relationship with her mom had been rocky ever since she had been caught seeing Nicholas, so 
The girls clung to the belief that if they could overcome Pauline's mom, they would be able to stay together. On April 29, 1954, Pauline wrote in her diary that she had decided to kill her mom and make it look like an accident. Juliet was, quote, worried, but does not disagree violently. On June 19, 1954, Pauline confided in her diary that they carefully worked out a plan for the, as Pauline put it, moider, moider, M-O-I-D-E-R. I think she's so young that she doesn't know how to spell murder. She was, quote, thrilled by the idea and said the, quote, the pleasure of anticipation is great. On June 21st, Pauline wrote, quote, I feel keyed up as if I were planning a surprise party. Finally, on June 22nd, Pauline titled the day, quote, the day of the happy event. Pauline and Juliet went on a walk with Pauline's mom, Honora. After having lunch at the tea rooms, all three took a walk around Victoria Park. Not long after, the two girls came running back to the tea rooms covered in blood. Agnes and Kenneth Ritchie, the owners of the tea shop, listened as the girls told them that Honora had fallen and hit her head. Quote, please help us. Mummy is hurt and covered in blood. Eric Gordon McElroy, a worker at Victoria Park, heard the commotion and accompanied Mr. Ritchie to the accident. As they walked just about 130 meters down the path near a small wooden bridge, they saw a body on its back with the head downhill. There was a stream of blood that had congealed, and the lower denture was lying near the jaw. There was no blood on the path in either direction to suggest a fall, and not to mention there was a half-brick lying near the head. Right away, Mr. Ritchie and Mr. McElroy could tell that this was not an accident, and they called the police. Soon after arriving and examining the scene, the police found a bloody stocking just a few yards away under some trees. Dr. and Mrs. Holm are called, and they pick up Pauline and Juliet from the park and took them home. There, they were given a bath, and their bloody clothes were taken directly to the cleaners so the girls would not have to see them and be reminded of this terrible accident. They were also given sedatives to calm down. Certainly not the way to handle a crime scene. Like, at all, obviously. Just like Mr. Ritchie and Mr. McElroy, the cops could see that it was not an accident. Honora had major lacerations on her head, neck, and face, and minor injuries to her fingers. Pauline and Juliet were interviewed the same day, and both eventually confessed pretty quickly. Pauline was asked if she had gotten in a fight with her mom before the, quote, accident, and she said, quote, oh no, my mother has never hit me. The half brick had been placed in the stocking and used to hit Honora over and over. Although the girls only thought it would take one blow, it ended up taking over 20 to kill her. Both girls were arrested, but neither showed remorse. They continued to believe and act as though they were beyond the laws of common man. The trial was an absolute sensation in New Zealand. One commentator was quoted saying, quote, Teenage girls don't go around murdering their mothers. At the time, Pauline and Juliet were only 16 and 15, respectively. The home searches after the arrest were when Pauline's diary was discovered. All of her injuries about the murder proved it was premeditated, and the girls knew what they were doing. Juliet told her arresting officer, quote, I would have to be an absolute moron not to know murder was against the law. 
Sadly, that officer would go on to later commit suicide. His daughter said that the murder deeply upset him as they seemed like normal teenage girls and she was around the same age at the time. Pauline and Juliet's lawyers tried to claim not guilty by reason of insanity. Defense psychiatrist Reginald Medlicott and Francis Bennett testified in court that the girls' beliefs in the fourth world paradise was evidence of their insanity. They suffered from, quote, paranoia, delusions of grandeur, and delusions of ecstasy. Each affects the other and aggravates the process of the disease. Mr. Medlicott also said that the violence in their writing in the weeks leading up to the murder increased to a, quote, fantastic crescendo. It was his belief that Pauline and Juliet suffered from communal insanity, which made them insane in each other's presence, a.k.a. folie à deux. The Crown prosecutor did not agree with the defense psychiatrist and stated that the crime was, quote, a cold, callously committed and premeditated murder committed by two highly intelligent, insane girls. Unfortunately for Pauline and Juliet, the jury agreed. After just five and a half days of trial, the girls were found guilty and their sentencing of five years included a provision that they could not contact each other ever again. They were too young to be considered for the death penalty. Pauline was sent to Daparua near Christchurch. Juliet was first sent to Mount Eden in Auckland, but then sent to Arohata in Tara near Wellington. Apologies if I butchered those. There she spent um, her first three months in solitary, where she cried and repented. She described her years in the prison as raw and brutal. She was the only child inmate at the women's prison. All right. So it's been pretty interesting up until this point. But to me, this is where it really gets weird. So in 1959, after five years of prison, both Pauline and Juliet were released. The public then has no idea what happened to either girl for years. Fast forward to 1994 and the release of Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures film. Journalist Lynn Ferguson is inspired by the movie to track down Juliet. There was a rumor that Juliet had become an author, so Lynn used birth dates to match Juliet to a Scottish-based writer called Anne Perry. And get this, Anne Perry became a successful historical detective fiction writer. She had sold over 20 million copies of 100-plus novels and novellas. So let's just say that one more time for the people in the back. A teenage murderer grew up to become a successful murder writer. Anne admitted to the crime and her true identity and has spoken to journalists, documentary makers, and a biographer. She changed her name, took on her stepfather's surname, and made peace with her past. She told Listener Magazine, quote, admit you're wrong, say you're sorry, and then move on from there. Anne said that in 1954, she believed that Pauline would have killed herself if she had not agreed to the murder. While Anne had been at the sanatorium for three months, Pauline wrote her every single day, and Anne felt that she owed her. After prison, she became a flight attendant for a little while before moving to the United States, where she became a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. She then returned to Europe where she began writing. And although she writes, she says she won't ever write an autobiography. 
Pauline's whereabouts remained unknown until journalist Chris Cook began searching for her after Juliet's new identity of Anne Perry had been revealed. Former schoolmates had remembered Juliet as never doing anything she didn't want to do, so the excuse of only going through with the murder out of fear Pauline would commit suicide sounded like only one side of the story. Chris wanted to find Pauline to know more. He found her located in the UK in a town called Kent, living a very reclusive lifestyle. She had changed her name to Hillary Nathan and was teaching kids how to ride horses. Hillary did not want to speak, but her older sister, Wendy, did share some things. Wendy was just 11 months older than Hillary. They were very close as children and often mistaken for twins. After prison, Hillary studied at the University of Auckland, graduated in 1964, and then spent a year at the New Zealand Library School. Colleagues said they remembered her as mysterious and secretive. She made it a point to be absent on picture day. Hillary became deeply religious and tried to become a nun, but ultimately failed to do so. I wonder if that has to do with the fact that she committed murder at 16. Anyways, she basically lived as a nun and spent most of her time praying. She was a devout Catholic and did not want contact with the outside world. She did not own a TV or a radio and therefore had no idea what Ann Perry had said about her. At some point over the years, Hillary told Wendy that the murder was a situation that, quote, got out of hand and was sorry it ever happened, though it did take her five years to really realize what she had done. Wendy was only 17 in 1954 and had never spoken to her sister about the brutal way her mom had died. It's not clear why Pauline chose the name Hillary, but there is speculation about choosing Nathan and its biblical reference. David, king of Israel, committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. David then had Bathsheba's husband killed by placing him in the front line of battle and then calling for retreat. Nathan was the prophet sent by God to make David face his guilt. A Catholic priest said the name Nathan would be indicating repenting of sins. So, to wrap it up, Hillary Nathan, or as we know her, Pauline, moved to Scotland to the remote Orkney Islands and still has no contact with Anne Perry, or Juliet. Anne Perry has moved to Los Angeles where she is pursuing her, and Pauline's, childhood dream of turning her books into movies. That does it for episode six. Thank you so much for listening. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you like what you hear, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisForMurderPod or contact me via the website MisForMurder.com. I'm open to all comments, questions, concerns, suggestions, or just chatting up. Don't forget, new episodes drop every Friday. Next week, the letter G. Have a great weekend, stay safe, and I'll see you on the internet.